Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, I want to say thanks to Bruce for uh, covering for me while I was gone last week, and not just covering for me, but proclaiming Christ. And I know when I call on Bruce, I can call on a worshiper who preaches. And uh, so I appreciate you, brother, and thanks for filling in and being faithful to exalting the Lord. Um, I want you to notice something uh, immediately in this text of Scripture that we're about to look at. Um, It is a gap. Uh, This is one of the quiet moments where Jesus really doesn't show up uh, in the text. It's like he's silent. Now, he's here, obviously, but up to this point in time, Jesus has dominated the landscape. His teaching, his miracles, his interactions with people have shaped everything that's going on, but suddenly it's silence. The crucifixion has happened. Jesus' body has been taken out and put in Joseph's tomb and everyone waits. And in fact, there's a little line there that says, and it was the Sabbath day, and they kept it. And I want to just pause and say this to you, just as a side word of wisdom, because what's happening in this text of Scripture is the, the folks are devastated. They're deeply affected by the death of Jesus. This is a time of great brokenness for them, but it tells us that they actually kept the Sabbath. The women kept the Sabbath. They rested on the Sabbath. And as they're doing this, it allows them the opportunity to reflect on the teaching of Jesus, which they'll be reminded of. And, and I say this to you because you know what it's like in the busyness of life. You get a lot of noise in your life. But the thing that's going to be helpful to you, the thing that's going to be restorative, recalibrating in your life, is your capacity to remember what the Lord has said to you. Isn't it possible to do your devotions, run out the door, and forget an hour later what you read? Isn't it possible to be church on Sunday, hear a sermon, go, wow, that really spoke to me in some way, and in the middle of the next week, forget what you've encountered and heard? We need to help each other remember what Jesus has said, because remembering the Word of God changes everything. This is a title shift. If you're looking at the Gospel of Luke, the flow of the whole Gospel right from this point has been towards the cross. It's been in that direction. But now the cross has happened. Now Jesus has died on the cross in our place. And you're about to see a shift in the tide. And the, and, and the shift goes to Calvary, out from Calvary to the ends of the earth, if you go into the book of Acts. There's a tidal shift that's taking place. And I use that illustration because last week we were in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but our friends live on the Bay of Funding. And if you haven't heard about the Bay of Fundy or know much about the Bay of Fundy, the Bay of Fundy is the largest tide movement in the whole world. When tides come in around the world, the average height of a tide globally is 
3.3 feet, 3.2, 3.3 feet. The, the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia is 52 feet. So according to the statistics, every 12 hours, 100 billion gallons of water flow into the Bay of Fundy and flow out. Every 12 hours, there is more water that flows into the Bay of Fundy than all of the other rivers on all the other oceans around the world. And so that's where we were, watching the tide come in and go out. The boats kind of fall over on their side in some of the channels and some of the bays. The tide comes in and raises back up. You and I need to see in this text that there is about to be a huge tidal shift in the lives of the people that we're about to encounter. Big changes are about to happen as they discover what's really happened after the death of Jesus in the empty tomb and the resurrection. And that's crucial for us to see because we need to think what shifts the tide for them. And what it is, is hearing and seeing the empty tomb against the backdrop of the words of Jesus. Um, listen to um, Philip Reichen. He says, until and unless and until we believe in the word, word of God, life is all too perplexing. But when we do believe, everything starts to fall into place. And so hearing Jesus is different than believing Jesus. Encountering his teaching is different than being transformed by his teaching. And in this text of scripture, we're going to have a group of people who are radically changed by the announcement of Jesus' resurrection the empty tomb, and his death. And as we think about that, I just want to come back and say to you, what is the tide that God desires to change in your life? I mean, these people are going to be radically changed at this moment. And as you and I come, the reason we've done this whole study in the Gospel of Luke, when we started out saying, why should we study the Gospel of Luke? We had one goal. And our goal was that Waterbrook would be captivated by Jesus. You're about to see three groups of people captivated by Jesus and how it radically changes the way they, li they live. Big shifts in their experience, big shifts in, shifts in their interpretation. But I want to pause and ask the question, what's the big change that God wants to do in your life? Even today, you know, when the tide begins to change in some of those little channels, it, it just begins with a little trickle. Uh, you don't know there's 52 feet of water. 100 billion gallons of water about to flow. It just begins with a trickle. Some of you, I would suggest, God has already begun a work in your life. God has already begun to trickle a change of direction in your life. And as we study the word and listen to Jesus, I'm going to ask you, will you respond to the working of the Holy Spirit and allow God to make that title change in your life? What's the change that God intends to do in your life today as you read and listen to Jesus and the word of the Lord this morning. So let's walk through this text and let me introduce you to a few people and show you the big shift that happens, the title shift that happens in their lives. The first person I want you to meet is Joseph of Arimathea. He is a member of the ruling council. He is there at the crucifixion of Jesus and he moves into action and here's what I want you to see the, in the text what happens in this text is Joseph of Arimathea no longer 
is a secret disciple. Up to this point in time, he's a secret disciple. And so here's the challenge I want to put to you. Are some of you secret disciples of Jesus? You believe? You think he is who he claims to be? You sing the songs that we're singing this morning, but in your heart of hearts, you're not open. You have fears about your family, fears about your co-workers, fears about the community, whatever the community is that you belong. Is it possible today that God is saying to you, no more secrecy about Jesus? Some of you are being baptized today. And the reason you're being baptized is you, in a sense, are saying, no more secrecy about Jesus. Jesus has called me to go public, and I am going public with my faith in Jesus Christ. You are, because of what he's done in your life, taking a stand publicly and say, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. Look at this text with me. Go to verse 50 of Luke 23. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council. Isn't that interesting? So this is no nobody. This is somebody who's part of the Sanhedrin, part of the ruling council. He's a man of influence. And we're told here he had not consented to their decision and action. You hear that? You can feel already the earth shake. You can feel the tide changing. As Jesus is arrested, as he is being treated falsely, as he's being accused, and as he is executed, something's going on inside Joseph of Arimathea. A shift is happening. He knows what is going on is not just. He understands that he is participating in a great evil. In fact, we would say the greatest evil ever done. The only innocent man that ever lived was executed for crimes he never committed. That's what's coming on here. And it says, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. I want to put those things together for you. Because what we have is Joseph in the heart of the whole process beginning to respond to what's happening to Jesus in light of his expectation around the kingdom of God. Joseph has been watching Jesus. Joseph has been learning from Jesus. Joseph has discovered in Jesus what he believes the Old Testament anticipated, which is the coming of the son of David, the messianic king, to establish his kingdom. He's expecting that, watching this trial, watching this uh, false accusation, watching this cruel execution, and it's all, something's going on inside him. Now, if you go to some of the other Gospels, for example, John's Gospel, in John chapter 19, we are told this in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, that's what I want you to see there, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away Jesus' body. There's a shift here. What, what was the characteristic of Joseph? pre-arrest, pre-crucifixion. It says he was a disciple of Jesus. But he was a secret disciple. He was a secret disciple because he was characterized by what? Fear. He was afraid. 
to be identified. He was afraid of the council that he was part of. He saw their influence and so on. But somehow, in the middle of all that's gone on, in the crucifixion, arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph has said, no more. No more secrecy. In fact, it's interesting, in John's gospel, he's not alone. Luke doesn't tell us this, but in John's gospel, we're told Nicodemus was with him. It says in John chapter 3, verse 39 to 42, Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus when? By night. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. My dear friends, the tide's beginning to turn. Inside the Sanhedrin even. Says, and he, they were about 75 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in that place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, there was a new tomb that no one had yet been laid in. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Joseph had a tomb there in that place, and it was his, had never been used before. No bodies were there. And in Jewish culture, a tomb would often have multiple bodies placed in there. There was a whole process where you could put more than one person. And this tomb had never been used. And uh, our men yesterday in the men's study in Isaiah, were studying in Isaiah 53, the prophecy that the Messiah would be buried or would be in his death with a rich man. This is that text being fulfilled. And I've got to think in Joseph of Arimathea's mind, he's watching this whole thing unfold. He has got an understanding that the kingdom of God is coming. But let me ask you, how does Joseph know that Christ is the coming king? How does he become a disciple as he's watching and listening to Jesus? I'll tell you how he knew. He studied the Old Testament. And as he studied the Old Testament, he knew a king was coming and a Christ was coming and a Messiah. And as he got into Isaiah 53, he's watching this whole thing go down and he's realizing we're involved. We're doing this. This is us. And he stands up and says, this is not just. This is not right. So you and I need to see several things here. Number one, Joseph did not agree with the accusations against Jesus. Secondly, Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He's interpreting everything in light of the Old Testament prophecy that the son of David would come and rescue Israel. Number three, Joseph had taken a risk in going to Pilate. Here's the sign of the shift. He's now willing to be identified and do something that put him at risk. He goes to Pilate and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, in Roman days, in this time, when a crucifixion happened, they didn't take the body down right away. In fact, it was a rather grotesque practice that they left the body hanging on the cross for days because they were doing this whole cruel execution to make a point that if you cross Rome, this is what will happen to you. And so the normal process for Pilate was to leave the guy hanging there until he rotted. It would be a horrific thing that would be for the rest of your life impressed upon your minds. And here's Joseph of Arimathea going and saying, I want the process to change. I want you to give me his body. Listen to what Mark says in his gospel in Mark 15, verse 43 to 46. Joseph of Arimathea, 
a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took what? That's what the resurrection does. That's what happened watching this and understanding. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It took courage for him to do this. The coward, from cowardice to courage, that's what happens here in this pause as he reflects on the kingdom of God. This well could have cost him his career, Riken says, that it had taken him a lifetime to build. Pilate was surprised to hear that that. Jesus had already died. So it says in that uh, Mark passage, he sent to the centurion. Do you remember the centurion? Who was in charge of the death and said, surely this was a righteous man. He calls that man and says, is Jesus really dead? I mean, he really died. And he said, yes, he is. And he gives the body to Joseph of Arimathea. It was not only a risk for him to go to Pilate, but essentially... This put his whole life career on the line because he was going publicly against the Sanhedrin. Not only by taking Jesus off the cross, but the act of putting Jesus in his own tomb was to own Jesus as his own. Now some of you are about to be baptized and you're going to go into the tomb. You are going to be buried in the water and be raised to new life. And Jesus has taken you into himself in his death. And in your baptism, you are taking Jesus, in a sense, publicly into your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is now your resurrection. That's what Joseph of Arimathea said. So Riken says, by taking Jesus down from the cross and burying him in his own personal tomb, He was deliberately and publicly identifying himself with someone convicted as a criminal. This could well, very well cost him his career that it had taken him his whole life to build. How could he go back to his friends in the Sanhedrin when everyone knew how boldly, and I would add publicly, he rejected their verdict? Riken adds these words, the time had come for him to stop being a secret disciple and to start making a public profession of faith. He understood that even though his faith was personal, it could no longer remain public, private. So what's the application? no longer secret disciples. No longer private Christianity. Because Jesus died and rose again, no longer cowardice. Courage. Courage to stand up and to go public, right? Maybe that's the title shift in some of your lives. No more private discipleship. No more secret Christianity. Maybe the shift that's about to happen in your life is open public confession of a crucified and risen Lord. God's people said? Amen. The second person we see here, a group of people, are the women. A group of 
weeping women. And the shift that happens from them is they go from weeping to wondering, from sorrowing to announcing and rejoicing and celebrating the, the announcement of the angels that the tomb was empty and Jesus was risen from the dead. Look at verse 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee. So that's, that, that's an all-encompassing tomb, a term or phrase that describes a long history of traveling with Jesus in his ministry. These women who had come with him from Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. So these women that are mentioned here have been going with Jesus for some time. And as Jesus, they've been at the foot of the cross watching. Because everybody else has been scattering and denying that they know Jesus. They've been steady, standing there. And when they take Jesus and put him in the tomb, they go and watch where he's put. And and this is all in Luke's mind in, in one sense to remind us that the burial and resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. He didn't just faint. He didn't just swoon. He just didn't appear to die. He died. And he was actually buried. And it wasn't that these women somehow got up on Easter morning and wandered off to the wrong grave looking for it. They knew the grave. They went exactly to the place where he was buried when they found the empty tomb. But what we're meant to see is that there's something that happens in the women. Look at chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn. That word in the Greek for early dawn, that phrase means not just the break of dawn, it is the very first pre-dawn dawn light, if you want to say that. The moment there is the slightest rim of light on the horizon of the morning, these women are on their way. (laughs) They're waiting, honoring the Sabbath, but the moment that that light breaks and they can go, they're up. There's light to go there, they go. They are eager, they are mourning. It says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they're perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. This is how angels are described regularly in the scriptures. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek, what? The living among the dead. What are you looking for here? What did you think you were going to find? He says, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise and they remembered his words. Click. Here they were so overwhelmed with sorrow that they couldn't put it all together. It seemed like a disastrous failure and the angels say remember his words. These women who had stayed close, these women had listened, who understood, listen, remember his words. These are a group of women, and Luke does this in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, the women are almost always treated with honor and respect and dignity. In fact, I think 100% of the time they are treated better than they are in the culture. Better than they are by Jesus' own disciples, even in this passage. These are faithful women who have walked with Jesus. Listen to the names of the women in verse 10. This is Mary Magdalene and Joanna, 
and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who told the disciples this when they come back. Listen to this group of women. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house, and a woman breaks in. And they immediately say, whoa, what's she doing here? She falls at Jesus' feet weeping. And she anoints his feet with tears and with precious ointment, breaks an alabaster jar and pours ointment on Jesus, anointing him and acknowledging him and wiping his feet with her hair. And, and Simon the Pharisee says, don't you know this kind of, or thinks, don't they know that this woman is a sinner? And then Jesus says, Simon, you've not treated me like this woman. I walked in, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing me. And Jesus says this powerful line. He says, she or he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. These people love Jesus. These women deeply love Jesus. In the very next verses in Luke chapter 8, we're told, soon afterwards Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of God. There were 12 with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, whom had seven demons gone out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager. Start to think who's here. Mary Magdalene, Herod's household manager's wife, has gone to follow Jesus. Susanna and many others who provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means. In John chapter 19, we're told that when they were standing before the cross, it says the soldiers crucified him, did these things, and standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. These are about as loyal people as you can get. These are people who deeply, deeply love Jesus. They're broken-hearted. They're righteous women they follow Jesus. They want to follow the burial customs. They keep the Sabbath day. They're, they won't go against God. They'll do it God's way. They'll wait on the Lord. But they are eager to honor Him. They're sorrowing women. Listen to R. Kent Hughes. He says, As we consider the state of the Galilean women, we must not let the knowledge of the glorious revelation that awaited them dullest to the dark sackcloth covering these women's souls. So we want to go to the resurrection, but he says you should just pause. Do you realize what's going on here? He says these were depressed, exhausted, mourning. They were depressed, exhausted, mourning with no hope whatsoever. And it's to these women the angels say, why are you standing here? looking for the living among the dead. Don't you remember what he said to you? And Jesus had said this repeatedly, that he must die, be crucified by the Romans, and on the third day rise again. And you can imagine in their mind, oh, sorrow, the, the beginning of the trickle of the gospel of light, penetrating the sorrow of their heart. And the deepest sorrow and greatest disappointment of their lives, in a sense, is suddenly overwhelmed by the breaking of light and life as they remember the words of Jesus. Let me just say this, that 
for some of you, the thing that has kept you from following Jesus fully is sorrow. It's deep sorrow. When we went to Nova Scotia and got off the plane, we found out that somebody else was flying in for the ordination uh, that we didn't know was coming. It was Marilyn Shaver, the mother of my dear friend Andrew, who died two years ago at the age of 40. And she flew in and we spent a couple of days with her just being together at this ordination was a special time. One point in time, she just, just the two of us were standing there and she just looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, thank you for loving my son. And I said, it was a two-way street. We loved each other. I got on the plane. We got on the plane to fly back and went to Toronto and saw our kids while I'm with Steve, my phone rings. It's my friend Brian, who I've asked some of you to pray for. And Brian said, Kev, we, j we just took Jessica off life support. She's just a few old years older than my daughter. She's married and has two kids under five. And there are moments where you think, this is I, unbelievable. Some of you guys were with me when I got Andrew's call from my friend Pete in Nova Scotia. There are moments, quite honestly, when your breath is taken away by the pain of the curse and of death in this world, and you think, I don't know if I can do it. The only thing that brings hope and any chance of recovery of this kind of broken sorrow is to hear the words of Jesus who came into this world to take on sin and death himself and to rise triumphant his empty tomb don't you remember what he said and I need to say that to you for some of you the tide change for you is to believe and hear maybe for the first time that Christ has defeated death and conquered over it we sang it this morning God robbed the grave and it may be a weak trickle <laughs> in the other direction, but that's why Jesus came. And my hope and prayer for all of us is in a world where we live in the shadow of death, we live in the triumph of the resurrection. There is a new day dawning. Number three, Simon Peter. It's been a bad few days for Simon Peter. Not only do we have someone who has struggled with a secret discipleship, and then we have sorrowing disciples. But here's the shame-filled disciple. The women come back, and they're treated typically like women are. And in fact, some argue this is one of the reasons why you can believe the message of the gospel. You can believe the message of this gospel because Luke is not writing to convince you with the best witnesses that were culturally acceptable. The women would not have been believed. But they are the ones who believe and are sent to announce the resurrection of Jesus. And it says in verse uh, 12, or verse 11, but these words from the women seemed to be an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose. Can you imagine 
The women telling him the tomb is empty. It says Peter rose and what? Ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. He went home marveling. (laughs) Just previous chapter, the rooster crowed. And Peter ran in the other direction. Can you imagine what it was like when that rooster crowed and Peter realized he had denied his master? It says he left. He just ran and he wept. I have to imagine every time for the rest of his life when a rooster crowed, he'd feel that pang of shame. And he would have to hear the voice of Jesus again. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. But I have prayed that your faith would not fail. And Simon, when you are restored, feed or tend to my sheep, right? Care for my sheep. He now hears, what? I can imagine he's running and he sees the empty tomb and he hears the voice of Jesus. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you are restored, resurrection, restoration, a new day, running in one direction and running back with a whole new life. This is the shift. When my dad was 13, his dad took his life. I didn't know that growing up. In my mind, I thought if I would have known that when I was growing up, I probably would have understood my dad better, but I didn't find out until I was an adult. But I said to my dad one time, many years later, I said, Dad, what did you do on the day of your dad's funeral? What was that day like for you? And my dad said, I ran. I went, what do you mean you ran? He said, I literally ran. 13 years of age, I ran. I didn't know where to go. So I just ran. Where I come from, it's flat prairie farmland. You can just run. You keep running and running. You can run forever. Simon Peter ran in sorrow. Some of you have been running in sorrow and shame. The story of your life is just trying to get shame, trying to get the pain of failure, trying to get guilt. You don't have to run anymore because somebody ran to the cross in your place. Somebody hung and took the shame of sin and death upon himself. That person paid in full so that you don't have to spend the rest of your life running away from the past because he has bore it all. Run to Jesus. Change Simon's life. It can change your life. Are you somebody burdened with sin and shame? Can you feel the trickle of the cross, the empty tomb now streaming into your life? Your story of sin is no longer the dominating narrative of your life. There is a new story. Your sin is paid for in full. When you go under the water to be baptized and you come up, shame is gone. Sin is gone. Death is gone and you are new in Jesus Christ.
He is risen triumphant on your behalf, and his new life is your new life. That story is now your story. Is that not good news? My dear friends, what's the title shift that God wants to do in your life? Fear and secrecy? Sorrow? Shame? Leave it all and follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross, the empty tomb, and the resurrection. We thank you that because of Jesus and the power of what he has done for us, in the words of Jesus that minister to our hearts today, we are reminded that we are no longer slaves to sin, dead in our sin. We're no longer have the narrative of our lives, one of despondency and sorrow and curse and hopelessness, but we now have Christ. So I pray, dear God, do that work in each of us that needs to be done. Change the direction, the flow of our lives from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from sorrow to joy. Do it now, we ask. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.